Welcome to the Beyond Birth Podcast. Join us each week as we take the conversation of motherhood beyond birth. I'm your co-host, Liz Winters, a nutritional therapy practitioner, certified pre- and postnatal coach, BirthFit Regional Director, and Mama. I'm joined by my friend and co-host, Jenny Anderson, Mama, Doula, and fellow BirthFit Regional Director. Our hope is to inspire, educate, and empower women as they navigate pregnancy, postpartum, and parenthood with evidence-based guidance, informative interviews, and entertaining anecdotes from our perspectives as moms, entrepreneurs, and birth professionals. While you're listening, please keep in mind that the information on this podcast is for general purposes only and should not be considered medical advice. Thanks so much for joining us. Let's dive in. Okay. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of the Beyond Birth Podcast. I am so thrilled to welcome our guest today. I'm going to sit here and chat with the wonderful Lily Nichols. If you are not familiar with Lily, she is a registered dietitian and nutritionist, certified diabetes educator, research, and author with a passion for evidence-based prenatal nutrition and exercise. Her work is known for being research-focused, thorough, and unapologetically critical of outdated dietary guidelines. Emphasis on that unapologetically critical piece. I love it. (laughs) She is the author of two best-selling books, Real Food for Pregnancy and Real Food for Gestational Diabetes. Lily, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for having me. We are so excited. Um, Just to start things off, I would love it if you would just share just a little bit about yourself, um, anything that you would like to share. Sure. Uh, Well, I've worked in the prenatal nutrition space for most of my career as a registered dietitian. And a lot of my work has focused on gestational diabetes. So the elevated blood sugar that's either first diagnosed or first recognized during pregnancy, whether or not it's caused by the pregnancy or something that was pre-existing. So I've worked in a lot of roles. I've worked in clinical practice. I've worked in public policy with the state of California. I've worked on a lot of research projects, consulted with a lot of prenatal and perinatal programs. And what you start to see when you see nutrition, prenatal nutrition from so many different angles is there's just a lot of gaps in the guidelines that are put out and sort of interpreted as etched in stone or gospel or unquestionable. Um, And when you start really looking at some of the newer studies that have come out, you see there's room for improvement. (laughs) And so (laughs) a lot of my work is just helping people become aware of the areas that can be improved, um, ways that we can optimize a mom's nutrition so that her pregnancy is smoother, a little more enjoyable, if that's possible. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Optimize her baby's development, hopefully help her postpartum recovery um, go a little bit easier. And just, you know, set up her, her kid's life to be off to as good of a start as we can. There's a lot of areas in nutrition and lifestyle that can impact a baby's Um, They call it epigenetics, like the expression of their genes and their risk for having health problems either in utero or even later in life. And my work is really on trying to help people connect the dots of some of these different 
nutrients that can be so beneficial, um, lifestyle choices that can have positive effects on pregnancy outcomes, and just empowering people that, you know, not everything is within your control in pregnancy at all, but the areas that are within our control, at least we can fall back on, I did everything I possibly could within my control to have the best possible outcome. So, yeah. Right. And I love that piece that, I mean, not, not everything is in your control. There are a lot of things that we, we can't take, we can't do. And that goes just through pregnancy, but that also goes into labor and delivery and definitely into parenting, as I'm sure, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) a lot of exercise of like, okay, I'm going to let go of this expectation. And then, like you Mm -hmm. said, leaning on the things that we can, we can control, or at least have some positive impact on. Exactly. So I'd love to know what made you want to be become an RD. And I know that you you also you call yourself a real food RD. Is that is that correct? Yeah, it's sort of a it's an unofficial term that a lot sure. of us dietitians who disagree with pretty much everything that it means to be a dietitian. Yeah. The preconceived notions that people have about our profession, um, and rightly so. Uh, using real food in front of it helps people identify that we're aware (laughs) that um, not all dietitians have exposure to education on real food ingredients and, and have really looked outside of the box of conventional dietetics. Sure. Can you dive into that a little bit more? So what, what brought you into the world of, of dietetics and then what made you kind of shift toward this real food lens? Yeah. So I actually decided I wanted to study nutrition as a teenager. Um, So I was one of those rare people who went into school with a major declared and never changed it. Um, Though I did add on an art minor because I needed a little bit of like right brain activity (laughs) happening (laughs) in my world. Um, I was pretty aware of nutrition growing up because my parents were pretty health conscious. Now granted we ate a lot different than I do nowadays because they were um, very much influenced by a lot of the misinformation on animal foods and saturated fat. And so I didn't grow up eating a whole bunch of red meat. You know, we had a lot of whole grains and um, but still, you know, the good parts of it, lots of um, lots of fresh produce, lots of, you know, access to farmers markets. um, Just a lot of, cooking from scratch, really. And uh, that really sort of colored the lens through which I saw nutrition. I was influenced by, I like interned with a nutritionist in high school and um, she had a very Weston Price uh, focus. So at the time I started working with her, I was actually vegetarian um, and (laughs) suffering some health problems. And she kind of opened my eyes to maybe you might want to someday try incorporating a little more of these animal foods into your diet. And so by the time I got to college and went through my training, um, I had read a lot about nutrition already and a lot of you know, both the conventional stuff and a lot of quote alternative theories. This is before they called any of this stuff integrative medicine. It was like complementary and alternative medicine. <laughs> and so I, I didn't accept the guidelines at face value. I was always looking at the data to see did it support it or not? Did it support some of these alternative theories? Because some of them are supported and some of them are like complete quackery. Um, 
So I really enjoyed the science aspect of it. And that's something that, you know, continues on today is just always looking at like, what does the peer reviewed literature have to say about XYZ topic? Um, so I didn't intend to become a registered dietitian. It was just once I was in school and this was sort of presented as the most, um, uh, the, the best way to become a nutritionist, like the most respected credential, even though I didn't agree with everything that went into my training. Um, I did appreciate the science aspect. And once I was in it, it was like, I may as well just finish it out, do the RD thing. So I did have to bite my tongue a lot. Um, <laughs> I did do a lot of presentations on controversial topics like you know, I did a presentation on Splenda, which I don't think I got a very good grade on because at the time Splenda <laughs> was like, you know, the holy grail of artificial sweeteners right. and I was saying that it wasn't healthy. Um, but I kind of used my education as a chance to just research the heck out of everything. And, um, and once I was a dietitian, I, I kind of knew I wasn't going to be practicing in conventional settings, at least not for my whole career, even though I did start out practicing that way as so many do. That's, that's awesome. And I love that you chose those controversial topics to present on during class. <laughs> I think that's rad. Yeah. Um, you, I always consider you the research queen. It's one of the things that I so appreciate about your book is the, you know, in, I just intense care that was put into it. Um, and then also you, you host several webinars. And so I, I refer to you almost as like the nutritionist nutritionist, um, because it's just such a nice source. Like I, I trust the process that you go through. Um, but do you have some tips that you could share with our listeners, just parents, um, you know, people who aren't necessarily going to be diving into the science, but are really curious about how to distinguish between, you know, something great that they read on the internet or something that is really not so great, like how to distinguish between those two things. Cause I think we all get stuck down the, you know, Dr. Google spiral. Yeah. And you can find a supporting argument for just about anything out there. Um, and it can be really overwhelming. You can. Yeah. And it's <laughs> hard because there's a lot of truth to a lot of the information that's put out, but at the same time, anytime you're reading something, you have to put it into context within sort of a baseline understanding of nutrition science, which a lot of people don't have, even a lot of health professionals <laughs> and so-called nutritionists or, or dietitians um, don't necessarily have. So it's, it's hard because I think most of the things that make it onto the internet or onto, you know, news headlines, they're there for a reason. They're there because they usually had some sort of a PR machine behind it to get the information out. So there's a lot of, you know, industry conflict um, with what gets publicized. And sometimes I scratch my head by the types of studies that make it into mainstream when there's like an equal there's like a, another study that came out with like better design, better methods, better everything that found the opposite outcome, but they didn't get a spot on the headline. And it's just, it's very frustrating. Um, 
what I do, and I don't know if this is helpful, <laughs> but what I do is that if I do come across a headline that doesn't seem to make sense with what my understanding of a topic is, is I do my own research on the topic. So my search engine of choice is Google Scholar. You can control by year. Um, so I'm usually, you know, I, I, we can't dismiss studies because they're old, but if it's like, a, you know, a new, newer thing that's on my radar, I usually want to look in the past two years and see what's new out there. And I just search and search until I find studies and read through as many as I can. Sometimes it takes me to get to page like 50 of a Google Scholar <laughs> search, which probably most people aren't going to do, um, to find some additional data on it. Um, and then kind of go from there. And if I don't understand something or it's outside of my wheelhouse, I might reach out to a colleague who is does have more expertise in this, you know, like my wheelhouse is really focused mostly on prenatal, postpartum, nutrition, gestational diabetes, um, breastfeeding, fertility. Um, however, if somebody's asking me a question about, you know, renal disease, that's like, that's not in my wheelhouse. So, you know, I haven't, I haven't right. been, I don't have like the context of clinical background and all this work all these conferences, all these, you know, fellow professionals I'm connected with to really make sense of that without doing significantly more work. So I think if possible, trying to identify the people who you know are experts in a particular topic and going to them maybe if you're not a person who can really make sense of the research itself. And that's like, that's one of my frustrations about the prenatal field in general is that I think you hear a lot from fellow mom bloggers and, and whoever else do your own research, do your own research because there's so much stuff that is standard of care, but isn't necessarily evidence-based. Mm -hmm. So that comes to, you know, a lot of birth choices, by the way, evidence-based birth from Rebecca Decker is a great, great option for researching different options for birth in a pretty yeah. non-biased um, format, very evidence-based. Um, you might look to, to one of my books if you want to get a different perspective from like the pamphlet you received on prenatal <laughs> nutrition, <laughs> you know, um, finding so those bad. people, those trusted resources where you know that that person has done some of the work for you because it's kind of unfair for us to expect non-scientists to do the work of a researcher. Like a lot of people have the capacity to do that, but maybe they don't want to, or maybe they don't have the time or whatever. It's nice to at least have the source. And that's why, you know, I, I chose to take the time to put like inline citations in the book, you know, all the little numerical superscripts. So you can go back to the back of the book. If you're a person who does want to see like, how'd she come to that conclusion? Huh? That doesn't make sense. You can go and read the paper yourself to see, but at least you have the context behind the topic rather than being just thrust in the world of Google Scholar and being completely overwhelmed by conflicting research. Right. Cause I mean, you can, you, I think you see two things in, in the internet land. It's like all this, all the studies, right. Which is a lot to filter through. I, I highly doubt, you know, a nursing mom is going to be flipping through that on her iPad while she's nursing. Like, well, I'm just going to read this 50 page study. Yeah. That sounds enjoyable. Yeah. Pr that's probably just, probably not. <laughs> 
<laughs> and even and even clinicians like your your doctor or healthcare professional if they're really busy in practice and they have to see i mean in conventional practice especially you have like 15 minutes with a client do you think yeah. that that clinician has time to go and read all these research studies like no, no absolutely <laughs> not full on clinical practice to be digging into the research that's why there tends to be a separation with the research academia side and clinicians and yet, if you don't have the clinical experience, then you might not have the context to set up a study that's actually going to give you useful, reliable results. So there's a bit of a catch-22 there. Sure, sure. And I bet it also takes, it seems to take a long time for what, you know, the conclusions that are being drawn from the research to actually make their way into the clinician's offices, right? Because there's that disconnect. Right. And so and we're that, operating that on gap, different... There's a, there's a study on it. <laughs> the gap is about 17 years. Which is insane. research gets into clinical practice. And then, of course, you have to think about policies. Mm-hmm. Policies are usually based on a sort of consensus from a group of people with varying degrees of expertise in clinical practice. Um, so there's even a delay, a further delay to change the public policies. And those can often be very biased by who happens to be on the board who has made the decisions. That's fascinating. And it also explains a lot why the, the pamphlet that I got during my first pregnancy was highly recommending like low fat, sugar-free uh, yogurt and encouraged me to microwave hot dogs if I was going to eat those. But that was like, that's what I remember right. from my pamphlet. And I knew better, but still I was like, really, this is, this is what's out in the world. What, what, what are we doing here? Yeah. You got a pamphlet though. I mean, I, did I didn't get, a pamphlet. get anything. <laughs> I don't know what's better or worse. A pamphlet that has bad advice or no advice at all. Uh, yeah. I really, yeah. Con- contextual to the person maybe. Um, <laughs> So from what, from what I know of you, you started your work in gestational diabetes. Is that, is that correct when you were first doing your, yep. your clinical practice? Um, how did, what made you, when you were in your RD program, go, I want to work with this, with this population? Do you remember? <laughs> I, so I came across gestational diabetes in my um, dietetic internship, which was a uh, compared to other internships, very heavily clinical, clinically focused. It was at um, the largest acute care hospital in Los Angeles. But I didn't make a decision like, I want to work with gestational diabetes. I was kind of scratching my head at the kind of recommendations that were being taught in those classes. Um, but no, I the opportunity to work in gestational diabetes uh, kind of came out of the blue. Um, and that was actually a, sort of at a public policy researchy kind of level with uh, California's um, California Diabetes and Pregnancy Program, which is also called Sweet Success. So I was on a, I guess you could call us like a board of several dietitians. I think there was five of us, if memory serves me, and we were um, reworking the nutrition and exercise guidelines. So I actually came at it from public policy standpoint before I really dove into the clinical practice. Um, But I did later sort of co-work with that organization and also work under a perinatologist who specialized in gestational diabetes. And that's when I was able to see, wow, these guidelines in practice, kind of embarrassingly that I 
worked on don't work very well. <laughs> you know, um, usually half of our, our, of our clients would quote fail diet therapy. So require medication and insulin. And I had a hunch that, you know, maybe recommending a minimum of 175 grams of carbohydrates per day to somebody who has a diagnosis, which literally can be translated as carbohydrate intolerance of pregnancy, <laughs> um, might do better with a lower amount of carbohydrates than what they recommended. <clears throat> I certainly disagreed with the super low fat, super low salt not nearly enough protein recommendations. That's like a separate thing. Mm -hmm. um, but I had, I had kind of a hunch that maybe there was some room for improvement. And so I did just a lot of research <clears throat> to make sure that it would be safe because there's a lot of warnings about going lower carb in pregnancy. And ultimately I learned a hell of a lot about pregnancy physiology um, what happens naturally in pregnancy, what things are abnormal, looking at the nutrient density of the diet. Could we meet micronutrient needs at lower carb levels? Oh, hey, we might actually be able to do it better within reason. We're not talking ridiculously low carb. We're just talking about matching the carbohydrate intake to what a person's body can handle. And lo and behold, we had significantly better outcomes. We cut in half the percent of our clients who required medication and insulin. We had almost no macrosomic births, so big babies. We had less interventions at birth. Moms recovered better. Like everything was just all around better. Like comorbidities like developing preeclampsia, which is very common to also develop with gestational diabetes, just somehow would miraculously not develop, you know? Um, so it was just better, easier pregnancies. Weight gain tended to be like right around where it should be without us having to fight about portion sizes or calorie control. People weren't hungry as much. They were just like eating to satiety without having to over control everything because we were supplying their bodies with more of the macronutrients that don't raise their blood sugar and less of the ones that did. And, um, and a, a more nutrient dense foods. And this was even within the context of, you know, a very low income resource for group of people. So, you know, it's, <laughs> it, it works, it works. It doesn't have to cost a lot and it can be significantly easier and less stressful for, for moms. So that's what led me to write Real Food for Gestational Diabetes. My first book was to get that out in a clinical practice. So I didn't have to like bang my head on the desk when I had a client reach out and say that they gave me this meal plan with, you know, 60 grams of carbohydrates at every meal and my blood sugar is super high and I'm following it exactly and measuring everything and I'm doing it raw. I don't know what my body's failing. And I was like, no, 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 my friend, this, the diet you were given is just bad. Right. <laughs> Let's fix this. Two days later, all the numbers are perfect and, you know, pregnancy goes on without, without all that stress. What a powerful fix and like solution that you're providing for people too, just to be able to, it's something that they can control, right? Because you, like you said, right. like my body's failing. Like your body isn't failing. We just need to support it differently. Yeah. And I think that- You're not failing. You didn't fail the diet. The diet no. failed you. Exactly. Exactly. And I think that's, that's such a, a powerful script change. Um, 
And that's, that's amazing. And one of the things I really appreciate about both your books is that you present information, like you're the research queen, right? You're doing all these studies, but then you take all of these studies and you present this information in such a digestible way, I guess, pun intended, um, without shaming. And I really appreciate that because a lot of like the, especially in pregnancy, you look, you look at fitness regimens, you look at diet, you look at lifestyle and all of it is so fear-based and shame-based that it's, it's just so frustrating. You feel like you can't win. Um, so to read a pregnancy nutrition book, um, that, that feels empowering is amazing. Um, and there's one topic that you touch on really beautifully in real food for pregnancy that I'm hoping we can dive into a little bit here. Um, it is a little bit of a hot button topic, but again, I think you, you have handled it so well and it's really navigating a, a vegetarian and vegan pregnancy. And I'm wondering if we can touch a little bit on that. Um, I actually used to be a vegetarian and a vegan, <laughs> and I switched several years ago to, um, I guess, it, I don't really work in the label land, but you could call it a more paleo-esque diet um, before right. becoming pregnant. Um, and, but, and I'm so thankful I did, because I don't think that my pregnancies would have been, um, I would have felt as good <laughs> going through my pregnancies mm-hmm. had I not made that switch. Um, and people often think that the, the problem with, uh, plant-based diets, if you will, or not even plant-based, but a vegetarian or vegan diet is that you're not going to get enough protein. But I think there are some other nutrients that are difficult or even impossible to source in a vegan diet. Can you just dive into a little bit of that? Yeah. Yep. It's funny. Like protein is one of my least concerns. I mean, we know you can meet your protein needs on a vegetarian and vegan diet. You might have to be uh, a little more intentional about combining different protein sources to make a complete protein and yada, yada, yada. But like protein isn't really my concern. (laughs) My concern is more on the micronutrient level. Um, So in the context of pregnancy, when you're baby is reliant upon your nutrient intake and your nutrient stores to grow. Um, The choice to eat either vegetarian or vegan has a lot of, there's a lot of important considerations. Um, So my job is to look at the data and then show you which nutrients could be missing or lacking. And this is very easy to do just by doing an analysis on a micronutrient analysis, diet analysis on vegetarian and vegan meal plans. And I did many of these and mostly on ones that are actually recommended by like dietetics practice groups that are focused on vegetarian and vegan diets. So I wasn't like intentionally choosing nutrient devoid food, you know, cause there can be like varying diet qualities on an omnivorous diet, on a vegetarian diet, on a vegan diet, on a paleo diet. Right. Um, so looking at the best of the best plans that were formulated by dietitians, seeing what might be missing, how you can make up for it, either with food or supplement choices, and then what are some of the potential downstream consequences of whatever choice you make? Because ultimately, your choice of what you eat is 100% up to you. I was a vegetarian before. I'm friends and have family members who are vegetarian and vegan. Many people make that choice for ethical reasons and it's not something that you're necessarily going to have any impact on changing. Um, And that's where thinking more on the supplementation side of things, I think really um, comes into play. Although there's, you know, there's, there's 
we don't know everything about what specific amounts of each nutrient is required. If you're just trying to meet the guidelines as they are, totally possible with some like very basic, basic supplements. Um, if you look beyond those guidelines and look at what's optimal and look at what the newer data is showing is required to optimize baby's brain development, um, lower their risk of diabetes and, and heart disease and all these other things later in life, optimize their birth weight, et cetera, that's when it starts to get trickier because you can see, oh, wait, there were some underestimates on vitamin B12 needs. Those are one-third lower than they should be set. There were some underestimates on choline. Those are one-third lower than they should be. There's significant controversy around DHA and which amount is optimal. Um, so if you're just supplementing with an algae-based DHA supplement, for example, do we know for sure that like 300 milligrams and 300 milligrams taken separately from the complementary nutrients that we'd usually be getting with DHA if we were consuming it from a food source, which are typically animal foods, seafood is animal seafoods, <laughs> are the most concentrated sources. Some algae contains it, although the concentration varies significantly in that you're not going to get a reliable source unless you're getting an algae-based DHA supplement where the algae was specifically grown and raised and has laboratory um, confirmed levels of DHA. So just want to throw that out there. But like it, if it doesn't come in the context of the whole food, does it still work together in, in order to support your nutrient status? So like for anemia, for example, it's not just iron. It's iron plus B12 plus folate plus vitamin A in the preformed form that you only get from animal foods and that your body converts at a very poor rate from plant foods, beta carotene, for example, into vitamin A. So if you're just getting an iron supplement, are you truly addressing all of the other nutrients that work with it? We, it, we don't know. Right. <laughs> and context right. matters here. The, the makeup of the rest of your diet matters. Your genetics matter. If you have the MTHFR variation, for example, which affects your folate status, that also affects a lot of your other methylating nutrients, many of which are found exclusively or just in higher concentrations in animal foods. So your MTHFR doesn't just affect your folate, which by the way, folate you can easily meet on a vegetarian or <laughs> vegan diet, lots of plant sources of folate, but folate also works in tandem with choline, B12, glycine, those are found primarily or only in animal foods in, in sufficient quantities. Also works really well with B6, found in plant foods, but also found significantly in animal foods. So there's just, there's a lot to consider. <laughs> so we're, we have to think about B12, choline, glycine, preformed vitamin A. We have to think about vitamin K2, unless you're the rare person who really likes that super fermented Japanese soybean product called natto, which has oh, yeah. a very acquired taste and texture <laughs> that um, most people find averse unless they culturally grew up eating it. We have to think about DHA, iron, zinc, the absorbability of them, the concentration that they're found in foods, the form that they're found in foods, and how they might work synergistically together. And so I don't have a perfect answer on you need to supplement with XYZ amount of this nutrient and then you're in the clear because we don't have that data yet. <laughs> and there's a lot of stuff we don't have 
data yet for pregnancy. And with that in mind, I think we need to maybe give a little credence to what traditional cultures were consuming to optimize fertility and pregnancy outcomes, um, which is often including some specific foods of animal origin that supply a lot of these nutrients I just mentioned in higher concentrations. Um, and then where there are gaps in the diet, filling in with supplements as needed. Right. Because it's not just about taking, you know, a pill that like checks all the boxes, right? Because like you said, these things work in context and they all work together. And it also depends on the person. Like the first thing that pops into my head is like, okay, well, how is their digestion working? What's their gut health like? Is Are they actually able to utilize right. these nutrients? Absolutely. Um, or are you just making really expensive urine? That is often the case. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> so for those who don't necessarily have access to, to high quality animal products, because I know that's one of, the, um, one of the biggest barriers when we talk about integrating more animal products into pregnancy and choosing high quality, um, especially if um, somebody is coming from a vegetarian or even vegan background and they're willing to go into this, you know, to, to add these things in, what would you recommend prioritizing as they, as they dive back into that world, even if it's just temporary through pregnancy. Meaning the person's made a choice to add in some animal foods. Yeah. So one of the first things I would prioritize is eggs with the yolks. And this, if you're vegetarian would fit right in with still being vegetarian. I think it's much mm -hmm. more possible to meet your nutrient needs or most of them on a vegetarian diet that includes eggs um, and possibly some dairy products versus a fully vegan diet. So I'll say that. Um, eggs with the yolks, two of those is gonna two of those a day is gonna provide half of your choline requirements for the day, which is excellent. That reduces your risk of preeclampsia, optimizes nutrient delivery across the placenta, optimizes your baby's brain development. And we have randomized controlled trials like really good solid data showing that we need double the amount that's currently recommended. So um, that means half of the current recommendation, <laughs> just to throw that out there. But you're going to have a much easier time of meeting your choline um, requirements if you include eggs. So those are fabulous. Um, if you can source them from, you know, pasture-raised chickens, all the better. If, if ethics around how animals are raised plays into your decision to exclude or minimize your intake of animal foods that usually helps out to know that your chickens are like having a good life and can roam on pasture and you know scratch around and eat bugs and grass all day versus being in a confined barn and there is actually data showing that the nutrient density um, is higher uh, so eggs number one um, I'm going to throw out some weird ones because <laughs> the a lot of times it's, it's not about like you need to consume a massive quantity of animal foods. It's just that even a small amount significantly contributes to your micronutrient intake. So clams and oysters, which by the way, some vegans will actually eat clams and oysters because they don't have a central nervous system and can't feel pain. So some people don't consider them in the same realm as like killing an animal with an active neurological system. So I'll throw that out there. I don't, that's, that's totally up to your personal choice, whether you agree with that or not. Um, but clams and oysters tend to be pretty sustainably 
raised, pretty ethical to get, and they're super nutrient dense. Like off the charts in iron, B12, and zinc specifically, and also selenium, iodine. Um, they do have some DHA. A lot of these nutrients are the ones that are lacking on a vegetarian or vegan diet or are not provided in, in forms that you can absorb well. So if you can incorporate several servings of those into your diet, like you're probably not going to get anemic. You're probably not going to become vitamin B12 deficient, for example. Um, really, really nutrient dense. Um, I'd say beyond that, I would be thinking about bone broth um, and anything, any soup stews made with like parts of the whole animal. Um, a lot of times these are things that people just discard. So you could actually be like cutting down on food waste and the quantity of animals consumed if we just made use of all the parts of the animal. Um, the bone, skin, and connective tissue of animal foods are really concentrated in collagen and a very important amino acid called glycine, which you need in significantly higher amounts. Glycine requirements compared to any other amino acid are increased the most during pregnancy. Um, and if you don't consume it directly from food, it's likely you'll become deficient or have signs of things not going well. So that can be like, it's required for the amniotic sac to maintain its integrity. And they show that people who have preterm birth actually have 50% lower amounts of collagen in their amniotic sac. So you want to like keep that intact so you can make its term. Right. <laughs> <Your> uterus contains <laughs> 800% more collagen at term than it did pre-pregnancy. Your skin has stretched, your breasts have stretched, your connective tissue has stretched to allow your belly to grow to this like incomprehensible size. <laughs> As someone who's currently pregnant, I'm like, what is happening again to my body? Um, your pelvic floor, that requires significant amount of collagen to adapt to pregnancy, to adapt to birth, to heal well. And then remember, your baby has bone, skin, connective tissue, internal organs, a whole vascular system that requires collagen as well. It's also involved in methylation, some of the same, the same metabolic process that we think of as folate being so important for, for preventing neural tube defects. Glycine works right in that same system as well. So bone broth significantly fills in that huge gap of lack of collagen a third of your body's protein is collagen. You only get collagen from animal foods. They do make a marine sourced collagen supplement if you don't want to eat land animals, but you're okay with being pescatarian, for example. They do tend to be significantly more expensive, but that is an option to add in. Um, it's worth noting that vegetarians tend to have signs of glycine insufficiency as well as just pregnant people in general tend to be um, tend to not include enough, even if you're omnivores, like if you're an omnivore and you're not eating all the parts of the animal, which most people these days don't, we just do our boneless, skinless chicken breast and lean steak and call it a day, you might not be getting enough either. So I think for everybody to, to incorporate that would be huge. So those would be my top three picks. I can keep going, but I think those fill in so many of the gaps that if you're even just including some of those into your world, you are significantly making a difference on um, the nutritional adequacy of your diet. And I love those three because I feel like they're things people can go get at any grocery store right now. You don't have to go to like a special 
space to go find any of that. Um, and it's not so scary as, you know, sitting down to a steak three times a day or whatever, whatever that might look like. But right. you, you talk to a vegetarian, they're like, oh my God, you want me to eat meat? Especially when I'm working with clients. Right. I'm like, I'm not asking you to eat a cow each week. Um, I mean, <laughs> that would be cool. But <laughs> and if you've ever done a like we do a grass fed cow share, um, we did a quarter cow two years ago. Okay, yeah. there's still some in our freezer. Like it, there they are big animals. It takes you a long time to to get through that. And what you realize if you do it that way is you get a lot of bones and a yeah. lot of meat that's very tough and really high in glycine. Talk about eating the whole animal. If you do one of those cow shares, you can be really particular about your sourcing, how the animal was raised, even how they were slaughtered and whether that was humanely done or not. And then you get all the nutrient dense parts, which can be <laughs> scary for people to cook, but you know, put your grandma sleeves on and right. in the kitchen. <laughs> yeah. We're in the we're in the same boat. Our we're coming to the end, like the near end. But I mean, we still probably have at least six more months of w worth of beef in our freezer yeah. right now from our quarter cow. And yeah. but I mean, the I think my favorite part of getting the quarter getting uh, a cow share is are the bones because I feel like it's so they're yeah. actually kind of difficult to find at grocery stores. Difficult to find bones from pasture raised, grass fed yeah. animals. It seems specifically right. Or they sell them for, now that bone broth is popular, they sell them for a lot. Like usually, right. you used to be able to get bones for free from like, you know, 15 years ago, I could get bones for free from Whole Foods. And now it's like, it's like five bucks a pound for bone. I'm like, give me a break. Or, you know, you get this little, little tiny like pint of bone broth for $10. Like, no, that you stuff can make is that. free. <laughs> this stuff is like just cutting down on food waste, making use of all the animal, but right. you know, it's all being commoditized and sure and marketed to us now. It's like, you know, that whole chicken that you just bought, save the carcass and make some broth. Exactly. Put that exactly. instant pot to work. <laughs> I know. Um, so diets are not easy to change. So I, I like to remind our listeners, this is not necessarily permission for you to go out and like berate your vegetarian friends. Um, what, so you've mentioned these three words or the three words, these, these three foods, but what are some other ways that you can kind of meet people where they're at, especially when it comes to addressing, addressing diet change through pregnancy? Cause I think that's one thing that can be really scary for people. Specifically to a vegetarian diet or just, just in, in general? general, in general, no, not necessarily specific to vegetarian or vegan. Okay. I, so I think when you've like worked in practice a lot and have worked with a lot of people who are pregnant, I mean, for me, one-on-one, -on -one, like hundreds and hundreds of them, you're always going to be meeting people where they're at, or at least right. that's how I've always practiced. I'm not like coming into a session and being like, so uh, you need to have liver and you need to do this and you need to do this. Um, I personally like to have a conversation about how they're feeling, what's going on <laughs> with them. Um, how do you feel your, your food has been like lately? What are you liking to eat? What are you not liking to eat? Because like pregnancy throws all the things at you, food aversions, nausea, um, 
early satiety, heartburn. And so it's like some recommendations aren't going to make sense at specific stages of pregnancy. And I think we need to kind of own that. We also need to own that changing how you eat is really hard. I think it is even harder in pregnancy. Like I feel like it's easier to come into pregnancy already eating real food, kind of go through like the nonsense that is the first trimester of just getting whatever down that will stay down. And then sort of you can shift back to, you know, I usually feel great when I'm eating X, Y, Z, you slowly return back to real food and keep doing that the rest of your pregnancy. That's sort of the, I'd say that's probably the easiest way to do it. If this whole real food thing is completely new to you, you're probably going to want to start with just a few things at a time. So a lot of times I like to just help people have better energy throughout the day. And breakfast is usually the meal that goes awry, that throws off your energy levels, that makes you crave carbohydrates like a crazy person and leaves you on this like blood sugar roller coaster if you don't get it right. So with breakfast, I really try to help people make connections on sort of the mindful eating cues that they're getting from what they usually eat. So tell me about your breakfast. They tell me about their breakfast. How do you feel after breakfast? How soon are you hungry after breakfast? What kinds of things do you want to eat later in the day? Just take me through a day. And then we can kind of go back to, have you ever experimented with eating different kinds of breakfast and did you feel different? And sometimes they they don't, like a lot of people are like, you know, just in their like cereal and milk is my thing for breakfast or oatmeal or whatever. But if they have experimented with maybe eating some different breakfasts that might be a little more protein heavy, um, <laughs> not even protein heavy, just supplying enough protein or some protein, right. um, oftentimes they'll notice that they're satiated for longer. They don't have as many cravings. They're not completely famished by the time they get to lunch. They don't have the cravings for sugar or caffeine or other like pick-me-ups mid-morning. And so I really try to like hone in on some of these mindful eating signals their body's already sending them and to really encourage them to keep eating the things that keep them feeling well. And I think for a lot of people, just getting enough protein is like a game changer for the rest of their day, for everything. I mean, if you have gestational diabetes, enough protein in the morning, excuse me, you're not going to have a high blood sugar reading after it, probably, depending on what it is and what you had with it. Um, <laughs> if you crave carbohydrates, like insane, and you're just like, you know, noshing on the Doritos or, or piece of fruit after piece of fruit after piece of fruit after piece of fruit, this sort of insatiable appetite, protein helps to just regulate your blood sugar and hormonal balance for the day. So you're not that very hungry caterpillar <laughs> until you go to sleep at night. Um, so that that's where I start usually. And then you can kind of work on all the other things. And I'm big on like, like just celebrating the, the small victories, you know, not beating yourself up over like, Oh, I had this and it like, wasn't super healthy. Like, no, we all eat stuff. That's not super healthy. Celebrate the times that you're having things that are really nutrient dense. Celebrate the times when you fit in eggs in the morning, celebrate the times where you got some greens with your, lunch or your dinner celebrate the times when you remembered to pack a snack of some nuts or something in your purse so that when you were super starving while running errands 
you had something nourishing to turn to instead of grabbing a, a cookie at the coffee shop or something, <laughs> you know, um, celebrate the little things and, and don't get too stressed out about trying to do everything perfect. Like we're all somewhere on the spectrum of trying to eat healthier and just, you know, it's one step at a time, one day at a time, one meal at a time. I love that so much. Cause I mean, it, again, you could eat the most beautiful food in the world, but if you're stressing out about it all the time, it's your diet isn't really going to serve you. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so it sounds sure. like, I mean, the first thing, the first thing people can do is just really notice, right. Notice how they're feeling and notice without judgment. I really like that you use breakfast cause it's something like relatively easy. Like, okay. How did you feel through the morning? Just being able to reconnect with your body. And I think pregnancy provides a really unique opportunity for people to do that because your body is often kind of screaming at you, right? Like everything is heightened. Oh, yeah. Like it's kind of yelling at you the whole oh, yeah. time, good things or bad things. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's like, Hey, listen to me, please. <laughs> so what yeah. a cool opportunity to, to reconnect. Cause I think, especially for those who have uh, maybe experienced disordered eating or, um, you know, as women, we're, we're often encouraged, you know, make ourselves smaller and quiet hunger cues. We, we shut mm-hmm. down that connection from our body, the body that we're living in every day. So what a cool right. opportunity to kind of reconnect and notice without judgment and then, you know, celebrate the small stuff without stressing over, you know, oh my God, I had M&Ms that one time. It, right. It's okay. Look at the rest of the time. <laughs> right. Exactly. We have to, we really have to put it again, put it into context of whatever everything else is. And, you know, not all symptoms of pregnancy are within your control. So I think people might get a little stressed out if they read maybe chapter three of Real Food for Pregnancy. And I'm like recommending all these specific nutrient dense foods. And some of them might be totally foreign to you, or maybe you're averse to them for a period of time. And that includes myself. I mean, it's not (laughs) like I somehow bypass normal pregnancy symptoms. I go through the same nausea, food aversions, nonsense as almost everybody else goes through. And when there are times when the only thing you can keep down is like bread and butter, or you really want fruit and like more fruit than you think is reasonable, but like that's (laughs) what your body wants. Like, just give yourself some grace and go for it and don't obsess over the details. You will likely be able to fit in. It's kind of like how I think about food with my toddler. Instead of looking at day-to-day or meal-to-meal variations, I kind of look at it in the context of like the whole week and like, okay, that day he just like ate so (laughs) much fruit, just so like fruit and milk. Like, okay, you know, and then like the next day he'll eat like really what I consider really well. And a lot of things balance out in that context. So if we think of our, of our food intake over a week or a month or even a trimester, um, I think it, it can, can help sort of like ease your anxieties about I'm not doing it right or I'm not doing it well enough. Like none of us are doing it perfectly. We're all just doing the best that we can. Right. Take a step back and look at the big picture, right? Like the same thing we're talking about with nutrients. If we get so honed in on, you know, this supplementing with this one specific micronutrient, we're taking it out of context of the whole food. 
And then same thing with meals, right? If we're only focused on, you know, oh my gosh, this one snack wasn't great. Well, like, let's take a step back, look at the day, look at the week. And like you said, look at like, look at the bigger picture. Exactly. Um, So on our show, we encourage women to really find their autonomy through pregnancy and into parenthood and often use the phrase F the should, um, Jenny thoroughly coined that my co-host. Um, and that should is typically referring to like how we should look, feel, act, think mother at any point during our parenting journey. Um, is there something that you would tell our listeners to F the should too? Oh man. (laughs) There are so many, right? Um, I think you can, I'm going to take this the postpartum route since yeah. I'm um, heading, heading into the latter stages of pregnancy. Expect a lot less from yourself. Um, F the should that you should bounce back. Mm. Bullshit. Um, <laughs> that your maternity leave needs to look a certain way. That your birth needs to look a certain way that the way you feed your baby needs to look a certain way, that your body needs to look a certain way. All of, there's so many expectations, I think almost worse in like early postpartum than during pregnancy, minus the really obnoxious comments about your body in pregnancy. Those are just like, leave me alone. No, I'm not having twins. Thank you very much. Moving on. Um, (laughs) The worst. Just keep your expectations really low. And, um, there's nothing you should be doing (laughs) other than resting and recovering and bonding slash feeding your baby and then um, allow, I know that's really hard in in the context of our modern worlds, but allow yourself to be supported and mothered by other people, just as many other cultures have done for generation after generation. But that's super lost in our world. Everyone's like, I should be this super mom. And it's like, it's impossible. You're going to end up really not in a good mental health space if uh, you, you try to do all the things. So don't try to do all the things. Do less. Chill. Recover. Bond. <laughs> and uh, yeah, don't try too hard. Don't try too hard. I love it. <laughs> Allow yourself to be mothered. I think that's a really important um, I like the way you phrase that. I think we hear the the phrase "mother, the mother," um, mm-hmm. and that's can be really, really hard to say. Like, hey, I need help, but maybe friends, if you have friends who are pregnant or family members, let's not even let them get to the point where they have to ask. Let's just let's mother people, right? Without smoking. Yeah, it would be really nice if that was sort of built into the way that we approach new moms these days in the West, but it, it, it really isn't because it's like whatever carried over from your parents' generation and their parents' generation probably is carrying over towards you. So you, you might have to sort of um, put your foot down and try to implement somewhat of a, a new tradition of <laughs> accepting some help. And that's really hard to do or plan for as a first time mom. I think now going into it for the second time, so much of my energy is around planning for a more supportive postpartum um and planning on what to 
delegate or outsource or expect from other people and uh and also planning for me to be doing a lot less for a lot longer than I think with my first I expected so um I'm trying to like practice what I write <laughs> this round. <laughs> so lessons learned first round. Let's do less this time. And, and uh, yeah. That's amazing. Well, I just so appreciate you sharing all of your amazing energy and knowledge on our show today. It's just been really delightful chatting with you. Um, will you let our listeners know where they can find you if they want to learn more or connect with you? Yeah, so you can find me on my main website, which is lilynicholsrdn.com. You'll find my books linked there and where you can purchase those. You'll find the first chapter of Real Food for Pregnancy for free. So if you just want to get more intel on like, what's this real food thing and this nutrient density thing and how is this affecting my baby and my pregnancy, um, that first section is is really helpful for, for helping you understand that and you can also get a sense for my writing style so you don't have to like invest in a book that you're going to hate, right? <laughs> so um, I'd rather have you only only purchase if it's actually something you want to read and not be a book that just sits on a shelf and gets dusty. Um, in terms of social media, I'm most active on Instagram these days. So my handle is the same as my website, Lily Nichols RDN, and you can find me on all the all the other channels as well. Awesome. Thank you. And you guys are all going to want the book. Go read the first chapter for free, but definitely go find that book and we'll link it in the show notes too. Um, Well, thank you so much, Lily. I hope you have a wonderful rest of your day. Likewise. Thanks so much for tuning into the Beyond Birth podcast. If you love what you're hearing, we'd be so thrilled if you'd subscribe, rate, and leave a review for our podcast wherever you enjoy listening. Until next time.